Podcasting straight from North Carolina is Dr. Jennifer Eichner-Lowry sharing her author journey with you. Jen Lowry writes is a place where amazing things happen for authors and readers together. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate podcast host. Jen is just the bird singing the song. She is a published author, educator, homeschool mama, life coach, and dreamer. Join her on the daily journey of discovering what this writing life is all about. Let's see what she will be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about today. Here's Jen. Thanks for supporting my Jen Lowry Writes podcast. My purpose is to inspire and encourage others to chase after their writing goals with faith and courage. By hitting the support this podcast button and with your monthly contribution of 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99, you are helping me chase after mine. Hey everybody, welcome to Jen Lowry Writes. Today I'm so excited guys because I have got Chuck, or as his book says, Charles Lickman with us, but we're going to be calling him Chuck today. He is here to talk about his newest release that just came out on September the 7th, The Sword of David. Based on painstaking research of biblical artifacts, religion, history, and terrorism, the Sword of David is a compelling portrait of how peaceful relations between Israel and Palestine might come about. As told through the lens of an Israeli commando traveling across the globe, following clues in such of a major biblical treasure that could change the destiny of Israel, Palestinians, and the world. Lickman currently serves on the National Board of Directors of Secure Community Network and an arm of the Jewish Federations of North America, responsible for protecting all Jewish buildings and people in the United States and serving as chair of the Security Committee for the South Palm Beach Jewish Federation. He has twice been recognized as Lawyer of the Year, founded a national voter protection program, and is an avid photographer and pianist. He lives in South Florida, where he's working on his next novel, and Chuck will get to that. Well, let's talk about the sword of David. Look at you out I'm there. I'm ready. And Jen, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I love being able to sit with you for the next few minutes and just talk about your work. So how did, okay, it's not your first novel. No, it's not my first novel. My first novel was The Last Inauguration. Inauguration. But you said people, you don't want them to get that confused. I had read that online. Like this isn't a, this isn't the step two sequel. This isn't it. This is something completely different and new. It, but it does have some of the same characters. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the sort of David for a few minutes. Where did this idea come to you about the artifact and the Ark of the Covenant and having to chase the commandments? I love it. Well, you know, actually, I wrote the book kind of in reverse, or I thought the book through in reverse. I knew what I wanted the conclusion to the story to be. I knew I wanted to write a terrorist story. I knew that, you know, all the all of the books that you read that, you know, or we, they call them spy novels, have the exact same story, you know, which is there's the hero, you know, who's the good guy, then there's the villain, he's the bad guy, you know, the protagonist, the antagonist. And then there's a crazy story all the way through where something is going to get blown up and a lot of people are going to die. And at the end, the terrorist gets stopped. Pretty much. Yeah, you've just summed up every single spy novel. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that was for the most part, 
um, the last inauguration. But in this book, I said, I need to do something different. I don't want to write that anymore. Um, I think that people are probably thrilled to read guys like Silva, who's a master, but I wanted to write something different. So I came up with the concept of what I wanted my ending to look like, to be as unique as anything could be. It, it was a, It's an area that I have focused on and studied exhaustively going back for 40 years, no exaggeration. So then when I knew what I wanted the ending to be, I kind of had to figure what is there that would actually get in a real life setting, because of course the book is fiction, but what would it take to really get people's attention? And I came up with, well, if the Ark of the Covenant was truly found and the Ten Commandments were truly located, and there was this mystical sword of David, and all that none of this is a spoiler. Well, if people actually saw the power of God, they might all of a sudden look up and say, well, maybe we should have a dialogue. So I figured out a way with those tools to set up the book so that one by one I could break out and lead to the ultimate conclusion of the story. So you and I worked in the similar vein because I worked backwards. I plotted my third act completely first, knowing where all the ending, all of the the ways the path was going. Was there freedom in that for you with this go around because you actually kind of knew where you were headed with the story? You know, uh, on one hand, there was freedom because I didn't feel the restraints of trying to stay within script, you know. Um, on the other hand, I had a, a narrow bandwidth in which to write the book because in order to try to make it as believable as you can, and in, you know, you could easily look up and say, well, the book's not believable. But the way that I tie history into it and actual events and actual locations and tell the story, that had me writing in a very narrow bandwidth. So once I came up with those artifacts, um, I had to figure out how to fit them into a context that readers could say, oh, this actually works. And, you know, I, I hate patting myself on the back, but my reviews have all been, you know, really, really strong. Like I got, I'm onto something. So real and relevant, real and relevant. That's what I wanted was relevant because the last inauguration was a great book. It was really a fun book. And, you know, after you read it, it was not relevant, but there's a dialogue that could continue with the sword of David, right? Right. Which means this one for you maybe is, is what you would consider a book that matters. I hope so. I think so. And people were telling me that. And, and it, you know, it's a book that people say, oh, you wrote it for the Jewish people, but I didn't. I wrote the book Everybody. for Christians and for Muslims as well. And my Christian friends that I work with have gone crazy over the book. I mean, they have told me they flat out loved it. So, you know, I know the book is for everybody. I suspect that there might be some people in Iran that wouldn't necessarily care for it, but, you know, moderate Muslims would latch onto it. So starting off with the book, you really put us in time and place where we get to see the gleaming sword of David and we get to feel the attack by the Romans and we're running. You have us as a reader right away immersed with the heaviness and the, the hurt 
of the time. And then you zoom us back and, and then you put us up into, you know, current 2019, you get us here. Now we're, and now we're reading this and it's like that weight that we still have still carries with us, even from the beginning into chapter one. So that was just so masterfully done, like starting us off there. Thank you. Um, actually, my concept there was history repeats itself. We've all yes. heard that phrase. Yes. And if you can look at every building or every corner of the world, and I don't know if there's a spot anywhere in the world or anywhere in history that has had as much to do with shaping the world as the Temple Mount. And this goes back, you know, even before 70 AD when the Second Temple was destroyed. You know, King David launched, you know, his initial temple there. And the Old Testament, of course, is based on starting, you know, way back with Adam and Eve. But King David is part of, you know, Islam and Christianity. So because of the vast history of the Temple Mount and remembering, you know, all the things that have happened there, and, and including even, unfortunately, just the events that occurred in the early summer on top of the Temple Mount by, uh, you know, the Dome of the Rock. Uh, it's always going to be a hot spot. So it was a natural spot to uh, commence the modern day, you know, rest of the story with. Yeah, and it, it was just a good time and place to put us there. And, and I really love that choice that you made with that. I want to say to you, like research wise, I know you put heavy emphasis on research. Just talk about how fun that was for you. Heavy, fun. Talk about it. You know, I am so happy that you phrased it that way because people ask me all the time about the research and they talk about, oh, you must have put so much work into it. And my response every time is, no, no, this is not work for me. I love doing this stuff. I love, I, I traveled, I mean, like literally I traveled to London and you know, there's a chapter that takes place in Westminster Abbey. I spent an entire day there until I found the exact spot that I needed. A day, went to Paris, you know, was in Rome extensively, made, I can't remember how many trips. I think it was five trips to Israel. You know, and to me, it's not just, it's not the travel, it's the investigation, it's the learning. That's what grabs me so much. And then, you know, there's some things I research online or books that I buy, and it's fun. It is it's fun. It's the immersion. It's the complete immersion. Yeah. It's a character and setting. And what, what better way to do that, one, as to either travel in the, at, at the actual locations or whether we're sitting at home in our libraries or online, Googling and YouTubing the world. But it, it gives you a sense though, doesn't it? Of just being able to reach out and touch the characters in the scene and put it back into the page. Uh, people have told me that they've been to the spots that I've written about. I mean, different people said, well, I was in the, I was in the Vatican and, and I can actually picture where you were walking and what the crowd was like and the traffic leading up to, you know, uh, Vatican City, you know, the whole thing. The same thing in, in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, because uh, I, I, you know, I was trained to be a photojournalist investigative reporter. So I have my camera with me everywhere. And in, let's say without exaggeration, I took 
500 shots at the Temple Mount. No, excuse me, down um, by the wall alone. So I could capture every angle, every crack, how the people are, you know, the all the different entrances and exits, because I wanted it to feel real. So I'll share this with you. You're the actually the first to hear that on my website uh, very shortly, chucklickman.com. I've been working for a while to take the best of the photos from Jerusalem, and I'm going to put up about a hundred of them with captions explaining what happened. Like, for instance, you know, I, I would imagine that there aren't that many Christians in America that have been to Jerusalem and have seen the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. I am not exaggerating. I have actually given tours of that building. I've been in there so much. I know the building backwards and forwards, and I'm Jewish, right? So I have pictures from there, and I'm going to explain, here's the church, here's the Dome of the Rock, here, you know, all the different locations, including, you know, so that people could get a feel for it. You could read it, and then when you see it, I think people are going to really appreciate that that visual. I, I don't even know why I just blurted that out, because I've been keeping that secret, but I guess I like you. Well, I'm so glad you do, because I like you, and I like your work that you're doing. And Thanks. I'm telling you, it does have its place for dialogue, and I know that that's what you said earlier, is that what is what you hope that could come from a possible book such as this, but you end it with that hope. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to say anything, but I will say that just the journey itself, getting yourself to that place and living it out through those characters, the burden of that, but also just the imagination, the imagination of that as it being a possible, like possible solutions or, or this. Yes. That's all we'll say. We won't spoil it. You got to go out and you've got to read the book. But I, I've I, studied, I've studied that area a lot. You said and, 40 years, right? Yeah. But just even that narrow, you know, the ending, all the different ways think that something might happen. And um, I'll tell you, it doesn't a hundred percent reflect my own personal thinking. But if I wanted to come to the table and say, well, how can we really solve this problem? It's always a give and take situation. And that's how I came up with that. Right. Love it. And that's the beauty of, of work that matters is that you can take that and it can spark and ignite a conversation. It can say, hmm, there's what ifs in the world and it could start within the pages of a book. So tell me a little bit about, okay, you said you went to college for photojournalism. Uh, for investigative reporting, reporting. and photojournalism. Okay. Yeah. So always been a writer. Always. Always when a lover I, of word and story. So this is a true story. When, my, when I was about seven or eight years old, my uncle Al took me to go see From Russia with Love. And my parents, my mom particularly, started me reading at a very, very early age like as early as I can remember. And I come back from, I, I, we leave the movie and I'm sitting in my Uncle Al's um, living room and he's talking to me about the movie and I'm like crazy. I love the movie so much. And he knew that I was a reader. So I'm gonna get up for one second. I'm gonna show you what he did. Oh, love it. So I'm gonna talk in the background. My Uncle Al, went upstairs, he came back a few minutes later, and these are the paperbacks of the Bond 
they're upside down, aren't they? They're upside down, but I see gold figures there. The, There's the gold paperbacks figures, yeah. of the, um, a lot of the in Fleming book. And you can see these are old. Like this was 60 cents, right? Oh, wow. It still happened to this day. I've read them all and I announced to my parents, like, I'm going to write stories like that one day. So it's always been in my blood. I've always been writing. I wrote a play in high school. And everybody said, you can't write a play. You're 17 years old. What's wrong with you? I said, okay, well, we're going to produce it too. And it made <laughs> there money. you go, Chuck. Do it. So, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm actually doing what I love, which is pretty fortunate. And, and so how about Uncle Al? Did he ever know the influence that you had, like no. that he had on you? Uh, unfortunately, he died uh, suddenly uh, just a few years after that. He has... He had no idea, and he no passed, idea, he but I talk about him a lot because of that. I, I'll never forget that night. And I'll never forget him giving me these books. I'll never forget sitting in my bed at night, you know, with a little light, reading them, struggling to get through them because, you know, it's not like I was reading Shakespeare when I was seven or eight. Or, right, right. You know, whatever it was, you know, I had to struggle through them. But that struggle and that challenge brought a deep appreciation for craft and story. Yeah. And, you know, Ian Fleming, uh, his books are simplistic in a sense, but the way that he crafts the Bond character is genius. The stories that he wrote were so creative. You know, writing has changed a lot over time, you know, because there's been different writers that have you know, held the mantle as being the best of the spy writers. Like there was Le Carre, there, you know, Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, now Silva's on top, right? And they all have different styles. But at the end of the day, Fleming was first. Talk about finding your style, your writing style. How did that work for you amongst all the greats? And Well, um, actually, I wrote... I overwrote the Sword of David. Uh, the what I when I thought the book was done, it was at one hundred sixty five thousand words. The book that was published was ninety three thousand words, because everybody said we love your story, but you went way overboard in detail, and actually probably overboard in character development, and you will never get published if you want to stand by this very long book. I love that version, by the way. So with the help of my agent, Tom Miller, who is a fantastic editor and has the patience of the saint, you know, because he he kept pushing me to cut, 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 and I didn't want to cut. Oh, let's talk about but that. We did, yeah. And then I finally got it. It was like the light went on and then I realized, I get it. As much as I want to tell all this other detail, it wasn't as pertinent to the book. And it kind of was freeing because then I could focus a little more on um, the reader, frankly. And the reader wants to be fully entertained as well as educated, right? And as well as being inspired. So um, my dialogue got more crisp. My descriptions were um, minimized, but at the same time told you exactly what you needed to know, as opposed to also that there was a speck of dirt on the window or whatever, you know? Right. 
So it, it got chiseled and shaped and, and. And it'll help me a lot for my next book. Oh, because tell us well, a little because bit. Now I think that I get what, what would be the right recipe. Because before you were just chasing after the words and the story and it all made sense to you as the, as the author. Yes, it did. Now you're talking recipe for reader because you said reader inspiration, enjoyment. Well, I, you know, I write for myself, but I deep down write for the reader. I when I write these, I bet there's not a writer in the world that isn't a little insecure. I am not an insecure person. You you could talk to anybody and say that guy is crazy full of confidence. But then when you put your work product out there and you're waiting for people to tell you what you think they think, you're like got your fingers crossed that. Your best friend, Lenny, is not going to come and say, Chuck, I know you put a lot of work into it, but it sucks. <laughs> but you didn't <laughs> get that. that hasn't happened. Yep, but that's like your great, that. that's a writer's greatest fear that like you think you've got something great because and that it isn't any good. But, you know, I'll trust the reviewers on this one. But you also have to trust your heart for story. You, know, you can't write a story unless you believe in it. And at the end of the day, right. the, re the reviews come and go, but, but you live with the books that you write. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I couldn't have said it better than you said it. I hope nobody ever asked me to repeat it because I don't know what I just said, but I do. Well, you got it on tape. <laughs> it's right? not recording. But I, I do believe that, though. I believe there comes a time when you have to just let go of all of that control that you have because you you felt like you were in control of that what 160,000 word story you were yeah, like 16165 you were in control of all of that right you had that control but then you had to release those reins and say i trust in my editor i trust in this process and i trust that it will be better the next go round and that is that's another leap not just with reviews or, but it's the leap to trust someone yeah. else, someone else with your work, but that's well, the way to get it there. That's the way to get it into the hands of somebody like me and, and the rest of the world. Well, I, I like to say sometimes I'm a moron, but I'm not a total idiot. So you knew. And by that, and by that, I mean <laughs> that if you've got a professional that you're working with, whether it's your insurance agent, your lawyer, your hairstylist, or your editor, you know, listen to the professionals because yes. nobody knows everything. And I sure didn't know editing. I mean, my my first novel was about 130,000 words and nobody complained it was too long. And it was a totally different type of story and it worked, right? But I totally get on this book why we edited it to a crisp, efficient 93,000 words. And now you've got words like Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Da Vinci Code. You've got comp titles here floating around circles with your book. How does that like capture a reader? I mean, yes, come on. That would capture a reader right away with those comp titles. Did you see it working within that kind of arena or was that something that was also suggested to you by the publisher or? No, nobody's, that was, that was all me. And, and it's been extremely flattering to have a lot of people say that they thought the book was very reminiscent of The Da Vinci Code and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I will admit 
that um, I loved the Da Vinci Code and admire what Brown did. I was not trying to copy him. It just turns out that the way to get to the story was to go through artifacts in a hunt. And um, Steven Spielberg is a hero of mine. He's put out some movies that have really moved me personally. Like Munich is an example. I have a an uncle, the only member surviving member of my family that didn't die in the Holocaust from Hungary out of 500. And he um, came over to Israel ultimately on a boat just like the Exodus. And ultimately we learned like right before the Munich Olympics that my uncle Oscar was supposed to be at the Olympics. And then we know that Black September went and killed all the Israeli athletes. And then, you know, Spielberg, you know, did this movie. And it turned out that my uncle ended up not going. He was, the way that we heard it, he was supposed to be a boxing coach and something happened. I don't really know why he didn't go, don't know the details. But when Spielberg put out that movie, it brought everything home to me. And that Munich event was what prompted me right then and there as a 17 year old to start learning everything I could about terrorism and the Middle East, what the problems were about, why was there this such hatred, and as much as I could about Israel as well. I even wrote a personal letter to him about Schindler's List in Munich and um, the one that that took place in Normandy, the his, maybe his greatest movie. I'm spacing out the name because my dad fought in World War II also, uh, where they land, landed on Normandy Beach at the beginning of the movie. Wrote him a long personal letter, you know, thanking him. So probably off track a little bit there, but no. he's such a genius. Saving Private Ryan. I need Saving to Private Ryan. Thank you. I had to go watching. find it because it was right with me too. And I was like, I know that movie. And I had to go. Sorry. I was listening at the same time. All good. All good. So he's been influential to you, Steven Spielberg. How about other influences with the writing, like the whole craft? I know you called out some. Who are your tops? Who are your people that you really admire? Well, you know, I don't know that it's going to be my next book, but my all-time favorite book is Exodus. I've read it many times, and people have heard me say for 20 years that if I'm ever in the position to do so, I would like to get permission from the Leon Uris estate to write the sequel to Exodus, taking that his story and bringing it current. So he was, he was influential. I um, loved Charles Dickens. That guy could tell a story like no one. And also Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers. People think of The Three Musketeers as some comical joke story, and it's far from it. That guy was a brilliant writer. Oh, and The Count of Monte Cristo. And the Count oh. of Monte Cristo, right. Love you know, those are, those are actually my favorite authors. So you've talked about a dream project here, a dream project part two of Exodus. I think that if, um, well, my book is off to a very strong start. So if the Sword of David continues on that path, I think it will open the door that if I was to reach out to the Eurus estate and show them my first book, show them the second book, show them some of the other things that I've done, that 
there's really no downside to them saying yes, right? They would probably make some money on it. And, you know, that usually talks. And I would even tell them some of the things that I've thought through on how I would tell the story. Well, sending and prayers would, your way. It would way. pick up right where Exodus ended. Sending prayers your way for that. Thank you. For doors to be open there. It's a so, long shot, but, but you know. Hey, you, what is this about? A lot, right, getting published was a long shot. Yeah, stories that matter. You go after, you chase what matters. Regardless of the outcome, you chase it. Because you know, like we said, at the end of the day, it's you and that story. Yeah. I, I had a mentor, a well-known guy that... Uh, pushed me to always do my best, try my hardest and to follow my dreams and said, if, if you're willing to put it out there and try your hardest, doesn't matter what your dream is. If you believe that you could get there, you have a really good chance of getting there. And there we go. Look at you now. I'm but sitting behind. Yeah. A lawyer writing spy novels. Right. Who also carries around a camera and plays piano and, and, Whatever else you may have, Chuck, that goes on in your life, you make it work. I have a great family. I have great friends. I've got health. You know, I, uh, I, I feel guilty sometimes that uh, you look around and there's so many people that through no fault of their own have misfortune right now in this, through this COVID situation. And, you know, I wish that I had Jeff Bezos' money. And to do what his wife has been doing just so you could go out and help some of these people that really, really need it. it. It makes me sometimes feel uncomfortable that I'm fortunate. I work very hard to get where I am, but not everybody has the same opportunity or the same, you know, there's a lot of factors, a lot of scenarios. I know that from growing up in the inner city. Right, right. Talk to me more about college to career to then going into publishing because you said publishing was a long shot just like you know other things talk to me about how that actually came together for you well i went to college fully expecting that i was going to be a journalist because i had done journalism through high school as the editor of the paper went to a special program at northwestern was writing editorials when i was a kid I think that the editors of the Gary Post Tribune would crack up when they'd see some 15-year-old writing a pretty good editorial. Um, so I went to journalism school, had a double major with political science, worked on the Indiana Daily student some, probably not as much as I should have because I got involved in a bunch of other activities as well. And uh, then thought I was going to go to law school just in case I didn't get a job. I got hired by the Chicago Tribune um, in journalism school. I think I was the only one they were hiring that year. It was really crazy that I go to the paper that I had read growing up in Gary, Indiana, which borders Chicago, and I get hired. And when I sit there with the editor named Peter Gorner, and he tells me that I'm going to make like $11,000 a year, and I'm going to start by covering the PTA, just like, you know, you always hear. And I looked at him, I go, dude, I want to go to Vietnam. I want to report from the jungles what's happening there. 
And he's like, well, yeah, there's some things you got to do before we let you do that. Like and go I to the cafeteria the school meeting. <laughs> and I, I didn't have the patience to say, okay, I'll, I'll bide my time. And instead I went to law school. Everybody that knows me would say, yep, I've heard Chuck say forever that he regrets that. But that all worked out because I actually loved being a lawyer and got to do some neat things. Um, I never stopped writing. I never stopped thinking about writing. And during the uh, inauguration of Bill Clinton, they had uh, they were televising the national ball. It was like midnight, and I'm watching this ball with every prominent American in that room. And I remember saying out loud, I was sitting by myself, my wife was already asleep. Wow, somebody wants to mess up this country, they just blow up that room. The last and, inauguration. And that was, in that moment, I said, oh my God, that's my book. There you go. And I stayed up for like five hours and started outlining and started writing the next day. Whoa, <laughs> went after it. You did not hold that. Right, did not hold back. Right. The crazy thing about about that novel was that the antagonist, the villain, was the real life Carlos the Jackal. Yeah. And I had studied him extensively. So midway through the book, I knew that I couldn't bring Carlos the Jackal to the United States. It wouldn't that would not be realistic. And I was trying to write a realistic book. He gets arrested in Paris. I track down his lawyer and I get Carlos to agree to um interview to give me his first ever interview nobody had ever talked to the guy before so uh he even wrote me a note about my book because he reviewed my book he said i want to read what you wrote about me and he wrote i still remember it by heart um i've just finished reading the last inauguration and although i'm depicted as a rogue mercenary mass murderer i must admit seeing myself in many situations that might in real life have been true and that's that's that all you, that's right? what you wanted. You wanted that's realistic. Wanted. You wanted that realistic feel. What better way to hear it from the man himself? So I've always tried to write as realistic as I could, even in a crazy fictional setting. Right. Because that's what makes a person say, oh, what if now? What if now? Instead of saying, what if, you know, this can happen 20, 40 years from now? When you get it right to the heart of the realistic portrayal, it's what if now? Right. And that's the beauty of the words. The weight of the words and the beauty of it, the whole thing. So that's why you're continuing on in this next novel that you've got that you're working on. I read that out, guys, in the bio. Any kind of little hints? Is this going to be a continuation of A Sword of David? Or if you left that story to rest for a while? What's up with uh, your next steps? Well, as of now, I'm going to write, I'll call it a sequel. Okay. It's going to pick up uh, not quite where the Sword of David ends, but not long afterwards. Um, it's going to feature the hero for some obvious reasons. I already know some of the things I want to do in the book. I know that... Um, I've, there's a common thread that I think that I can draw from history that can help 
support the notion of the end of the sword of David. So I want to drive that home to make people really think about why are they fighting. Um, I have yet to actually write a word because I'm, I've spent a lot of time putting down notes and thinking through where I want to go because I've, I've already come up with three different first chapters. Ah. So, you know, I, I want to get it right. Three I'd rather go slower and get it right. Three different first chapters. So yeah. you didn't work your backwards plot. This time, no. Like this, on this, I don't exactly know how it ends. Um, I know how I would like it to end. And we'll see what happens in the news over the next couple of years as to whether I can get there. Right. Some things are already working in my favor. Mm -hmm. Talk about realistic and now. Yeah. Right. It is. So... Now we know what's coming on your website soon, which is going to be some beautiful photography. Right. How about, focused. Very how, focused. About, how about you with promotion with the book and how has that been? Now that the book came out September 7th, it's out moving. I know you're here on the podcast to share your journey and to talk about story and your writing, but how has all of that felt as an author having to, to balance that? Um, I actually really enjoyed doing that. I um, was trained as a trial lawyer, so I'm used to speaking in front of people. I've done a lot of political work over my career and was assigned to handle media. So talking with people is natural for me, and I like people, and I like to like people. And um, when I'm given an opportunity to go into a bookstore, uh, I jump at it because it gives me an opportunity to meet people. My favorite activity, though, is book clubs, because if I do book clubs, I'm not constrained to having an hour or maybe 90 minutes in a bookstore where I talk for 15 minutes. There's a few minutes of questions. You usually have to cut the audience off and then you go and you sit at a table and there's a line and you sign one after the other and you don't really get to talk to the people. And I've, I had some book clubs with the last inauguration where um, literally I was there for four hours. And if it wasn't for the fact that we started at seven. Uh, <laughs> and it was getting whatever, 11 o'clock at night. Might have gone even longer because we talked, it, the conversation was, was always, of course, starting with the book and all sorts of different issues. But it would then spin off into topics related to terrorism where I can go deep. That was, you know, the first novel. So uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of book clubs. I have a few already signed up and where I know they bought their books. And I tell them, I think it's better that you actually read the book before you come in. The best, the best book club I had last time was, uh, some, was a group of ladies on a, on a fairly violent book that uh, loved the storyline and that was the group that I spent the longest time with because we sat there and we talked the whole time. Because they were connected to your work and then were able to, to dive deeper and to have yeah. that, that better experience with it. And I think it's going to be even better on this book because of the nature of the ending that I can really open up a dialogue to start making people think. And that's really what I want to do. I would love to have the opportunity to 
present the book in a mosque or in a Islamic cultural center, you know, in, in, in Florida where I live. You know, they're not all radicals. You know, I want people to hear that and believe it. So because you're true. Muslim does not mean that you're out to decapitate your next door neighbor. You know, it's just not true. Right. But that's breaking down those myths and yeah. stereotypes. Yeah, right. I know, because I lived with plenty of stereotypes growing yeah. up. Yeah. And then it shaped you and it's and it's made you. I, I look back and think that the um, rampant anti-Semitism that I grew up with in Gary, name-calling, getting punched for no reason, literally over 100 times got beat up, that that actually was really good for me because it gave me a view of the real world. And, and because it was an integrated school, I could see how my black friends were treated and... Um, you know, there's no difference whether you're black or you're gay or you're Jewish or you're Muslim, right? Or if you're pro-choice, you know, uh, people should have a right. All people should have a right to live their lives without fear of recrimination because of how they were born or because of what their beliefs are. Yes. And you fight for that, too. I do. You do. Yeah. So thank you for fighting. And uh, thank you're you welcome. I'm glad I have the opportunity to do it. Yeah. And thank you for chasing words like you do. With a passion put to good use. Thank you. Yeah. So, so how could people like reach out to you? You called out your website. Do you... Do you kind of uh, sit around on that social media any on Twitter or are you well, I'm on anywhere? I'm on Twitter a little bit. I'm admittedly not good on it. I'm on <laughs> Facebook. I literally give out my email address to whoever wants it. So if anybody wants to reach me, they can reach me at Chuck at ChuckLichtman.com, L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N. And I answer every piece of mail. I've learned that from people that have gotten a lot more mail than me, that if someone's going to take out the time to send you a note, you better show good manners. And I was taught good manners and respond back because I, frankly, I like engaging with readers yes. and educating them. Yes. Love it. Well, Chuck, you've educated me. And I've appreciated the time that we've had together today. I truly thank you for all of the work that you've been doing. And in that busy life of yours, you, you carving out a little space for me and my audience. So I just well, want to thank I'm you very for grateful for this opportunity. And, you know, I'll come back anytime you uh, all of a sudden at the last minute say, oh, my God, my, my uh, guest can't appear. Oh, Chuck, come back, I come need, back. I need three minutes notice. You know? <laughs> hey, don't, you better be careful because I got my journal right here. Let's see. Get Chuck okay. back. Uh, get Chuck back. <laughs> yes, I'd love to have you back. Love to All have right. you back. Jen, on the show. Thanks so much. I really, I really am grateful for the opportunity. All right. All right, guys. I will check you out later. Thank you so much for joining Jen Lowry Wright. You've got to go out and get Charles. Lickman, as we know him as Chuck, but go don't don't type that in when you're checking out his book. Type in Charles and go get the Sword of David so you can have it on your shelf. All right, guys, y'all have a blessed day. 
Now that you've found me on the Jen Lowry Writes podcast, I challenge you to head over to where books are sold and find me there. I've published 11 books so far, and I write clean books for all ages. Horror, paranormal, sweet romance, fantasy, historical fiction, you name it. I've got your genre. Search Jen Lowry at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kobo, and more. And for my Bible devotionals, you'll see my full name, Dr. Jennifer Eichner Lowry on Amazon. So I challenge you today to go out there and write something inspiring and share it with the world. Thanks for joining me on Jen Lowry Writes. You guys have a blessed day.